Good morning and welcome to Rising. Brianna and I are very excited to be here today because all we're talking about is the Martin Luther King statue. Uh, just kidding. We, 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 we got, I think we got uh, that out of our system yesterday. It was very popular. People enjoyed that video. I've got a solid 45 minutes left in me. Just give me a chance. Put me in, Coach. Uh, okay. Unfortunately, I think we have uh, some other interviews lined up for today. What's going on? Well, we have The Intercept's Ken Klippenstein joining us later. We'll discuss some of his new reporting into Tesla's self-driving vehicles and claims that he was censored for reporting on accidents on Twitter. Plus, you may, be, may remember CNN's Dr. Lana Wynn. She's facing backlash after arguing the U.S. is overcounting COVID deaths. You won't want to miss that conversation. I call her based Lana Wynn now. <laughs> I've, gone, I've done a total 180 on her. I used to be criticizing every single thing she was saying, and now I'm listening like, yep. Yeah, yep well, I'm looking forward yep. to your takes. All right. Uh, first, we have breaking news this morning. At least 17 people were killed, including Ukraine's Minister of the Interior and top members of his staff, after a helicopter crashed near a school close to Kiev today. All nine passengers on board were killed. The other casualties, according to Ukrainian officials, were civilian bystanders, including three children. The tragedy comes as part of a series of recent blows to the Ukrainian government. Just yesterday, a top advisor to President Zelensky resigned after claiming that Ukrainian counterstrikes were responsible for an apartment bombing that killed 44 civilians last weekend. Hmm. In a social media post, the official later described his statement as erroneous and a serious mistake. Mm. Meanwhile, CNN appears to have admitted the quiet part out loud while reporting on the conflict in Eastern Europe. In a Monday article titled, How Ukraine Became a Testbed for Western Weapons and Battlefield Innovation, one source familiar with Western intelligence tells CNN, quote, Ukraine is absolutely a weapons lab in every sense because none of this equipment has ever actually been used in a war between two industrially developed nations. This is a real-world battle test. Here at home, Republicans' temperature on U.S. intervention in the Russia-Ukraine war has hit new lows. A majority of GOP voters, 52 percent to 48 percent, want their member of Congress to oppose further Ukraine funding. Nonetheless, CNBC reports that across the pond over at the World Economic Forum in Davos this weekend, U.S. officials met privately with global allies and business leaders to rally around ongoing assistance to the war-torn nation. Former Secretary of State Henry Kissinger, who previously opposed Ukraine's admission into NATO, also revealed his change of heart at the WEF, noting, quote, the idea of a neutral Ukraine under these conditions is no longer meaningful. The prime minister of Finland wasn't far behind, pressing the importance of supporting Ukraine as long as needed. Let's watch. Do you think if this war in Ukraine lasts three, four years, five years, um, Europe has the staying power to, uh, to see it through, to continue supporting Ukraine, deterring Russia, dealing with the energy issues that arise out of it? I think the only message that we need to send that we will support Ukraine as long as needed. One year. Yeah, it's amazing to me that people are willing to say that. I guess it shouldn't be so surprising to me. I, I guess from their perspective, the posture has to be that you maintain that stand, even if you don't feel that way internally or behind closed doors, because you don't want to give the pub put out the public perception to Russia that if they just last a certain amount of time that they can wear out the other side. But from a which political is totally, perspective... Which is totally... Sorry, to, to cut it, yeah. that's exactly what neoconservatives would say about the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, that 
well, we can't. If we say when we're going, then they'll just then they'll just wait to fight bad. They'll you know they, then they'll know it, there's a time limit on our commitment. And you know, figures like John McCain, a, a sort of intellectual leader of the neoconservative wing of the Republican Party, said, well, yeah, if it's 100 years, it's 100 years. Yeah. Better the fight ha their view was better the fight happening there, better all the destruction taking place in Iraq and Afghanistan than you know, the terrorists here at home. Of course, you know, a lot of reason to think that maybe our involvement there is what inspires terrorists at home, et cetera. But it's very sim I think it's a very similar thinking. Yeah. And it's interesting how who is on what side has totally changed because skepticism, at least eventually, not at first, but eventually was uh, of Iraq and Afghanistan, was uh, there was a lot of that in the media, in progressive media, not at first when they, they supported it, but they did turn against it. But now that kind of progressive elite, the people at Davos, as long as it takes, totally committed to it. And it's, it's, you know, those backward conservative Republicans at, at, back home in, in uh, America asking too many questions about, well, how long is this going to go on? We think we've given a lot of money. Maybe, maybe there's an end date to that commitment. Yeah, I think the fact that both establishment Republicans and Democrats at Davos have a more united um, pro-endless war message, despite there being a real populist anti-war movement back at home, really speaks to how this is an, an elite, non-elite, inside-outside game issue more so than it is a partisan one. Although I do want to give credit to the fact that there is this growing anti-war movement among non-politicos in the Republican mm -hmm. Party, which in some ways seems to have more energy and enthusiasm behind it than the left war movement at this at this moment in they history. They held up Kevin McCarthy's coronation right. as Speaker of the House for the, the first time this was done against someone seeking to be Speaker of the House in 100 years over that. Yeah, and, the, and those 20 holdouts, I think, would not have felt so empowered to do that if they didn't know that there was a significant amount of public support behind them, mm -hmm. which, of course, is why so many progressives wanted the left to do the same mm -hmm. thing two years ago, because... The people are with them in all the issues they would have wanted the progressives to fight for. Nonetheless, back to this, it does seem to me, okay, even if I accept that they have to publicly pretend that they're in it with Ukraine as long as it takes, what concerns me is that there have been so many of these moments where the behind-door conversation seems to have been identical to the public conversation. And the fact that we're using Ukraine as a weapons lab, the fact that we have um, former Raytheon board members as, um, you know, and Biden's cabinet advising the war effort, the fact that we have the revolving door, the fact that we have defense stocks skyrocketing, the fact that Biden is taking time out of his schedule, out of his schedule to visit um, these weapons manufacturing plants down in the South. All of this points to the idea that there isn't an inside-outside game here. There isn't a, a public conversation versus a private conversation, and we can take solace in the fact that America really does know that it needs to end this war. It seems to me that there is one message, and that this isn't a bluff, that America really has a lot of financial incentives in prolonging this conflict, no matter what it means for the fate of the Ukrainians who are in the middle of this war. Mm -hmm. And this is a problem, a legitimate problem, that people have with things like Davos, where, and I've been watching some of their videos, their panels, the events they're mm -hmm. having, and I'm, I'm glad that you're able to see them. That's mm -hmm. a good thing. We're going to be talking a little bit later about some other events and some other conversations that were going on in Davos, but yeah, he, there they are, the Western elites, the, the leaders of democratic countries, business leaders, celebrities are there. Idris, Idris Elba was there and probably- What's Idris Elba doing there? <laughs> probably talking about how important it is to support Ukraine. No, I don't know. He, he, that's not what he was talking about. I think it was a climate change thing. Mm. But it's that kind of, you know, Hollywood meets- meets uh, politicos, meets business. It's, it's so elite yeah. and insidery, and decisions there are being made 
that the American people don't agree with. Yeah. That they're, I mean, fine. If you want to just sit, have panels, you know, congratulate each other on, on how committed you are to Ukraine's defense, <laughs> fine. But here in America, we still, at, at least in theory, our representatives are responsible to the people. They have to give the people the policies that the people want. And if half of Republicans, and I'm sure privately a lot of Democrats, probably the, the, the more progressive, the more left-leaning you are, probably the more, the more working class, et cetera, you are, the more you're going to say, hey, wait a minute, why is this the top priority of our government is, is, is spending significant proportions of our GDP on defending this country yeah, I, for, I, forever, I, forever? I, I, I got to say, like... I don't believe, you know, I'm an MMT person. I don't think the funding is one to one. I don't think the fact that we're spending on Ukraine is the reason why we can't have social programs at home, et cetera. However, rhetorically, the fact that these progressives in Congress aren't exploiting this moment of significant frustration with investment in Ukraine when Americans are paying more than a, a, a minimum wage hour salary for a carton of eggs is such an enormous missed opportunity. It's something bordering on an own goal. I don't know what's going on there. I, I do take the spending seriously, but n so many people, so many Americans will never believe the Republican Party that they take spending seriously when they keep... Uh, uh, McConnell, it's a, he said it's like the number one priority of the Republican Party is to write checks to Ukraine. And then they'll turn around and say government spending's out of... When Democrats are in well, charge, government spending's out of control. And cut Social Security, which is yeah. on the table right now. So yeah. Cut it all. Cut it all. <laughs> All of it. Cut it. Robbie says cut it all. I say cut none of it, but we can agree that there's some real hypocrisy going on there and inconsistencies with yeah. what's going on with our leadership. Yep. The spending priorities of the American government reflect the elite consensus at Davos. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That's fair, I think. Yeah. It, but it, the, sometimes if you say that, you're tarred as a conspiracy theorist for thinking that. Yeah, I mean, it would, it would seem less conspiratorial. They, they would be viewed as less of a... <laughs> Cabal, if there were some, I think, differing opinion there as well. Yeah. I mean, let's get some panels where people are actually arguing about the merits of being involved in this conflict. That's a great idea. What if there's a debate? What if, what if they if they could let a, a a political figure from the U.S. in good state, they could let um, uh, maybe Rokano is the only person willing to admit that he signed that letter and there's nothing wrong with it, or Rand Paul or something, have, have so, a legitimate political person in the U.S. who actually speaks for what so many American citizens want, which is just some scrutiny of how much longer this is going to go on. Yeah. Cancel Davos. Make it debate me bros. <laughs> <laughs> We'd be happy to attend. Absolutely. We have lots of thoughts. All right. We'll tell you what is on Brianna's radar coming up next. All right, Brianna, what's on your radar today? Well, Robbie, does it seem like liberals are always coming for your stuff? I feel like every time I log on, there's another article about how Democrats are infringing on our freedoms. This week, it's gas stoves. A few years ago, it was hamburgers. Last year, wokeness claimed the sexiness from the green M&M. Heck, I'm old enough to remember when liberals allegedly ruined Christmas at Starbucks with those damn confounded red cups. But whether or not you're someone who needs to see, say, religious iconography on your latte, long legs on your candy, or a pilot light flickering in your kitchen, you probably recognize that none of these issues are core to the freedoms that matter the most to you. Your ability to keep a roof over your head, pay for health care, raise your family safely, 
and with the values and traditions you hold dear. Which is why it doesn't matter to me if the woke M&M or coffee cups make people angry. I get it. Change is hard. And I can't deny that flats don't flatter every anthropomorphized sweet snack. Frankly, I don't know that little Debbie has the likes for sneakers. But what if I told you that while we're debating confectionery's footwear, state legislatures are passing laws that will dictate what you wear in your free time, that will constrain your choice to express yourself the way you want to. Now, we've talked a great deal about social media censorship, accounts being shadow banned or banned outright, entire stories like the Hunter Biden laptop story being wiped from the internet. What if I told you that there was a Texas law banning your ability to use certain social media sites entirely? We've talked a lot about the surveillance implications of Amazon home camera systems and how big tech companies so often turn your private information over to corrupt and untrustworthy police forces. But what if I told you that there's a Mississippi law being promulgated that would install cameras in rooms to record adults at work and school so that they can be monitored at will? And what if I told you that if your gender is ambiguous, say you're a short-haired woman partial to a pantsuit, that you'd have to submit to a DNA test under a new law to confirm that state documents conform to your gender assigned at birth, and that state workers that didn't force you to get a DNA test would be fined $1,500 for not complying with the law? What if I told you that after decades of First Amendment law being built on defending the right for adult magazines and videos to exist, that Louisiana passed a law that would require you to submit a state ID in order to view pornography. You can technically still see it, but who's keeping the list? I regret to inform you that this dystopian portrait is very much our current reality. Earlier this month, Idaho Republicans considered a bill that would ban public drag shows. Unlike other bills promulgated in other parts of the country, this bill isn't about banning children from drag shows. It simply bans men wearing women's clothes and vice versa. So much for any historically accurate productions of Shakespeare. Gender-bending Halloween costumes are even a fun Friday night for Rudy Giuliani. That's Giuliani, then mayor of New York, in drag. You know, you're really beautiful. The sketch was for a charity dinner, and it's pretty racy. This may be the best of all. Oh, you dirty boy, you... Oh, oh! Look what they're taking from us. <laughs> Look, in all seriousness, this law harkens back to anti-cross-dressing laws from the 1960s, which limited how many articles of clothing from the opposite sex a person could wear. And like so many laws, it was invented to criminalize, punish, and fine ordinary citizens, restricting their core American freedoms. Dig a little deeper and you'll find the Idaho law was drafted by a self-described Christian nationalist, Blaine Conzati, whose explicit goal is to impose his specific brand of Christianity on all the diverse Christian and non-Christian citizens of Idaho. Kanzanati cites Deuteronomy as a basis for this law, you know, the part of the Bible that says you can't wear wool and linen woven together. What's next? Are conservatives coming for your winter knits? <laughs> now, now, this law is not likely to pass constitutional muster, but as an op-ed in a local paper observed, it is likely to cost taxpayers plenty of money on a frivolous lawsuit to protect the citizenry's First Amendment rights. And where are the state Republicans in all of this? Well, this is a state where a few years ago they killed a bill that would give single mothers access to the federal child support system 
because they believed it meant Sharia law was going to be enforced. So needless to say, not a ton of pushback from the local GOP. Things aren't looking much better a couple of states over in North Dakota, where Republicans are so concerned uh, with how people choose to identify on state forms that anyone, including state employees, who wittingly or unwittingly use a pronoun other than the one assigned at birth on a form will be penalized to the tune of $1,500. Yet another instance, it seems, of government extracting fees from working people. Now, while the legislature is dreaming up new regulations and new fines, that North, it's worth noting that North Dakota's poverty rate is 13% lower than the U.S. average, and, or higher rather, and the minimum wage is 7.25 cents an hour. A 2022 poll shows that state priorities included education, crime, abortion access, inflation, and high taxes. Makes sense. That's what people all over the country care about. It seems, however, that policing gender identity didn't rank anywhere on that list. Now, in Texas, Greg Abbott is quite literally taking the choice away from Texas citizens. He has directed state agencies to ban TikTok on campus Wi-Fi networks. I guess you will watch what Big Brother Abbott tells you to watch. What is this logic? Well, it's apparently to, that to protect you from Chinese influence on TikTok, America has to become as restrictive and authoritarian as China. I mean, okay. In Mississippi, Republicans have introduced House Bill 278, which would require cameras to be installed in classrooms, including post-secondary education institutions. Meaning whatever you think about whether or not young kids should be observed, adults in college and grad school would be surveilled. As one lawyer put it, taxpayer surveillance of adults, not exactly the founding father's dream. And in Louisiana, while you can still technically watch adult videos, you now have to show your government ID for the privilege. I hope you trust the nanny state with the contents of your For Me page. Now, I get it. Wokeness can be annoying. Will and Grace and RuPaul really seem to have traumatized a generation. But while Democrats might have won some aspects of the culture war, you know, with respect to gay rights, marriage equality, and basic racial equality all over the country, some Republican extremists are using legislation to force their beliefs upon the public, using the law. They couldn't win the battle of ideas, apparently, so now they're using our legal system to strip Americans of their ability to choose what they wear, what they watch, and how they represent themselves. You have to ask yourself, how far is this going to go? A Pennsylvania school district has banned pride flags. Will other flags be banned? Canadian flags? Confederate flags? Blue Lives Matter flags, prisoner of war flags. What governmental bureau of acceptable flag waving will decide what banners the censured citizens of Doylestown, Pennsylvania are allowed to wave? A West Virginia law, SB 252, would make it illegal for a parent named Caitlin Burns to even travel with her kids in the state of West Virginia because her status as a trans woman is considered, quote, obscene under the law. The penalty for this woman being near her children, a five-year prison term and a $25,000 fine. And while so much of the concern about trans issues has been focused on the idea that children, due to their young developing brains, should be protected from, making, uh, from undue influence or from making big, consequential medical decisions, both the rhetoric here and the laws are increasingly criminalizing parents of trans children, adult behavior, as well as medical professionals who provide gender-affirming care to adults. 
just as was the case during the, let's say, Afghanistan withdrawal and so many other moments in history, won't somebody think of the children as being used as a pretext to justify behavior that ordinary Americans in ordinary circumstances would never accept? A foundational principle of conservatism or libertarianism, I thought, was to allow adults to make their own choices. But despite foregrounding freedom in their rhetoric and framing woke culture wars over cups and ovens as restrictions on foundational rights, some Republican lawmakers have been working overtime to actually impose their will on the public rather than simply convince them through the war of ideas. I don't think anyone should take your gas oven, to be clear. And the good news is no one's going to. Like so many viral news stories, this is a nothing burger dreamed up to distract us from the high cost of living, low wages, big tech overreach, congressmen's insider trading, the rich getting richer, and legislators rigging the IRS so that rich people will never have to pay a fair share. Even if you don't quite get what all the fuss is about with respect to trans folks, even if you think drag shows are weird or even prurient, Consider what it means to give the government more and more power to police how we live, how we parent, how we consume media, and to surveil our everyday lives. Surely you've heard Martin Niemöller's warning. First, they came for the communists, and I did not speak out because I was not a communist. How many communities will have to fall before you're worried enough about what it means for you? So yeah, Robbie, I've been really disturbed by the real wave of restrictions, uh, legislative restrictions that have been coming down the pike, even just in the last month or two. Many of them actually passed into law and successful. This this pornography bill in um, uh, Louisiana, which we've alluded to several times in the show, is really kind of galling. And I expect there to be some significant, one, legal backlash to a lot of these things, and also kind of public backlash, as I think Republicans have gotten over their skis here. But it, it it really is frustrating to me because I understand why people are mad at a lot of the things that the culture wars have us mad at. I don't, I don't care what you think about the green M&M's shoe wear at the end of the day. But if we're talking about that at the same time that they're passing laws to make you have to sign a loyalty oath, uh, saying that you won't support BDS in order to get a government contract, it seems obvious to me that those kind of infringements are so much more central to your basic rights as an American citizen. So most of the things you've pointed out, not all of them, but most of them are things I also think are ridiculous that conservatives should not work on that would be that would violate the Constitution or are in other ways violating people's freedoms under the guise of protecting freedom. And it's totally backward language. Uh, the porn ban is a good example of also something that is way worse, that potentially, at least, than the thing is trying to cure, putting in your driver's license. Like, we don't want to freely give our information to big tech. Isn't that how many times do conservatives have to learn that lesson? Right. That, like, empowering state surveillance of webs. It's just, it's so stupid. We just went through this. Yeah, for sure. Um, also, it's, it's like, it's totally at odds with, with what the norms are for at what age you can do things. And that's it. Like, you can get married at 16 in the state of Louisiana, mm -hmm. but you still have to put in your driver's license mm -hmm. to visit. Is it Pornhub? It makes no sense. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I feel similarly, uh, of course, about a like a total ban on drag shows. We're starting to get a little ahistorical with mm -hmm. like the conservative grievances against drag. I understand and uh, agree with, although I would still just like leave, it's none of my business. I would just leave it to other families. Like I, bringing kids to shows where they're stripping does not seem appropriate to me. I don't think the law really needs to weigh in here, but I understand why people don't like it. But just like just adults 
wear, men wearing women's clothing is actually part of like military culture indeed like world war II, south pacific and i've seen that uh, yeah. world war Two, the all male like it was it was funny. It yeah. was for entertainment. Harvard's it was not sexual. Performances. Yeah, it's, yeah. Um, it, it, as you brought up Shakespeare, like it, it is a centuries old. It's an American tradition. <laughs> it's a centuries old tradition. It's not woke or liberal or progressive. So we're getting a we're getting a little nuts here, and maybe letting some some uh, peculiar conservative Christian tendency try to dictate for what, how all conservatives or Republicans should feel about this. So I agree with you on a lot of this. We've got to be careful now. The the debate over what schools teach and what appears in schools is much more fraught because now this is concerning public resources. Taxpayers have to support it. It's, it's much more, um, there's, there's a, a more legitimate case. Well, I don't want this being subsidized or taught and I have to pay for it. And it's, it's, which is why I, I want to move as much stuff outside the realm of like public government control of things so we don't have those, those debates. And then what was the last? Oh, gas ovens, though. Not a nothing burger. I don't agree that that's a nothing burger. All the right. Consumer Product Safety Commission talked about maybe banning their sales in the future. Um, Look, you know the many- CDC and health bureaucrat people, they would love to dictate to all of us, just guidance. You don't have to do it, but everyone does, about what we're allowed to cook our foods. I'm, well, I'm, I'm going to be cooking states- your nothing burger <laughs> on my gas stove, okay? Look, there's many states where they've, they, the, you know, Republicans want to leave things to the states. Okay. Many states have voted and decided that they want to ban these kind of ovens. If you don't want that to happen in your state, don't do it. Fine. But it's also the case that incentives have been provided without the ban. Incentives are already been provided for people to get a lot of money, frankly, to switch out their stoves if they want to. And that's actually an, expanse, an expansion in these states where there isn't a ban. There's, it's an expansion of your ability to make a different kind of choice if you want. That's a very different thing. I want to come back just briefly to the example of the school. I intentionally limited this radar. Like, you have maybe personal feelings about drag shows and whether or not you would or would not per, uh, attend with your children. I have personal feelings about what should or should not be taught in school in a more progressive way. However, I'm not making any of those arguments here in this radar. What I'm saying is that even if you think that you have an, a, an invest, a vested interest in what children in schools are learning about, putting cameras in yeah. college yeah. classrooms to surveil people, I, I submit, is not the best way to go about yeah. having an impact on what well, the curriculum is Especially because we just went state. through the whole helicopter parenting conversation. Yeah. Nanny state. Many, many conservative parents are realize, think, and I agree with them, that this is a huge problem, that children are too watched and too supervised. We don't let people have free, unstructured playtime anymore where they can maybe you know, scrape their knees or fall off the monkey bars and like, learn from that experience. We don't do that anymore. Yeah. This, is just, this would be going so wildly in the also, wrong direction. So who's going to sit there and watch their like, 22-year-old child's Kim class? <laughs> like, reviewing the Google uh, types. A lot of people wild. named Karen, I think. <laughs> Don't empower. Sorry, that's, what are, that's what are we supposed to call word, them? Robbie. What does Stanford say? Entitled white women. That's so much worse. So much like, worse. So much worse. It's so much worse. More rising right after this. Ken Klippenstein, investigative reporter at The Intercept, obtained exclusive highway surveillance footage of the San Francisco Bay Bridge on Thanksgiving Day that shows a Tesla Model S vehicle changing lanes and then abruptly braking which resulted in an eight-vehicle crash that injured nine people. The driver of the Tesla confirmed he was using the car's new full self-driving feature just that morning. Tesla CEO Elon Musk had announced the self-driving feature was available to anyone in North America who requests it from their Tesla car screen. 
Ken's tweet containing footage from the crash and a link to his Intercept article describing the incident was allegedly being suppressed on Twitter, where Elon Musk is, of course, also the CEO. Political reporter Matt Stickland tweeted that searching for Ken's name on Twitter or tagging him in response to his tweet of the Tesla footage was being blocked. Here to discuss is Ken Klippenstein himself. Welcome back, Ken. Hey, guys. Good to see you again. So first of all, this this footage is remarkable. Uh, when you posted it, you know, it, it, what's so bizarre about it is that you kind of have the expectation that when there is a self-driving crash, it's the car that is the self-driving car that veers off wildly or does something unpredictable. But it was almost the, the quiet pause of the car that then caused the pileup that made it so eerie and nonsensical. What do we know about what the response from Tesla has been to this incident? They haven't commented on it yet. Mm. Um, federal investigators are looking at it. Um, they're going to look at the software data to find out conclusively what exactly happened that caused this. But one of the most amazing parts of all this is the uh, silence, not just on the part of Tesla, but on the part of Congress, too. In investigating this story, I learned that there are no federal limitations on the experimentation of, um, and, and this software is still in beta, um, the full self-driving mode. It's in beta mode. So we are all guinea pigs in this experiment on public roads uh, for which there is no federal regulations or limitations on, on, their, on their experimentation of. I saw some people responding to this video footage on social media, raising a, a couple of points that I want to run past you. Um, I, I saw claims that you were not actually, uh, the, the, the self-driving um, uh, option was not supposed to be used on that road. And that also, if something goes wrong with the self-driving part of it, you're just, I mean, it, what happens is the, the car comes to a stop as it was there, and then you're supposed to, you know, take over. You can press the accelerator, that kind of thing. So, I mean, does this situation suggest perhaps more a human error than anything else? Well, they're right. These are supposed to be uh, driver-assisting technologies, and that's an important point to make, and one which other car companies have been much more careful to make. Uh, Tesla is unique in calling this full self-driving mode. And if you actually look at the main lobby group uh, for uh, autonomous uh, driver-assisted AI, they are also urging companies to be careful in their language and have called on Tesla to drop that term. So what you have is a situation in which if you read the fine print, yeah, the driver is supposed to be paying attention. But when you have it branded as full self-driving, as Tesla does, a lot of people are not going to understand uh, that fine print, and they're going to trust the car to take them, you know, where, wherever they, it, not not take the responsibility that they're supposed to in terms of uh, paying close attention while they're driving. And in fact, can you write in your piece at The Intercept that Musk seems to believe that distinguishing himself from other uh, uh, semi-automatic, you know, driving car companies, electric car companies, by having a full self-driving mo mode is, quote, essential to the, the future of Tesla to develop, saying, quote, it's really the difference between Tesla being worth a lot of money or basically zero. So it seems like at least Musk believes that the full self-driving is a necessity. That kind of pressure, whether self-imposed or real, combined with the fact that moves are being made to, as you also write, uh, make it possible for users with more than 10,000 miles in beta to turn off the steering tag or the reminder that they should be keeping their hands on the wheel at all time. It does feel like Tesla is creating all of these incentives for full self-driving that is not being guided at all by the driver, setting people up for exactly these kinds of situations. Is that right? 
Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I mean, uh, to speak to both these questions, people are right to criticize the driver for not paying attention, but they're also right to criticize Tesla for not making clear that they need to pay attention while they're using uh, this technology, which again is in beta mode. And even in the best of cases, I can't stress enough, this lobby group that has spent uh, huge sums of money lobbying Congress on favorable treatment for the deployment of these technologies is urging these companies to be very careful in the language that they deploy to, to advertise uh, these these tools because people are not going to read the fine print. They're just going to see full self-driving mode. Okay, this has got it under control. I don't have to worry about anything. And so that that is really what I think needs to take place now because the changes that are happening are going to happen very rapidly. We are going to, in very short order, see these technologies deployed, not just by Tesla, but by all kinds of car companies. And this is really where the competition is taking place. Um, Tesla itself is under enormous pressure to uh, differentiate itself in the market uh, in, in this in this domain, because as you say, EV electric vehicles are now becoming something that all of the major manufacturers are getting in on. And so a smaller, younger company uh, like Tesla is not able to scale in the same fashion that something like Ford or Toyota is. And so then they have to find some other way that they can make their car useful. And it seems that AI is something they've invested a lot. In I mean, to, the, the hope, so. of course, is that, you know, lar- rolling out a lot of self auto-driving, semi-self-driving features are going to be an improvement to public safety, given you know how many car crashes there are as a result of human error or drunk driving or all that sort of thing. That, I mean, maybe we're not there yet, but that is th- that would be a, a good thing from a public safety perspective, in, in a sense, is the promise of the, this technology, right? I agree. Yeah, I'm not anti-AI. Uh, I don't think most people are. Um, I think the question is, how are we going to introduce this to society and how do we do it in a way that has guardrails and you know regulations and some kind of sensible system? Because again, we're at the bleeding edge of all of this and it's being treated as though, oh, we've got it all figured out. Mm-hmm. We're still very much working out the kinks as with any technology. And I wanted to ask you then about what happened on Twitter itself. Uh, I, I saw some claims, so so give us this, the story here. You know, was your your tweet or what you'd written um, being suppressed on Twitter? I, I saw some claiming that searching for it was being suppressed, although it wasn't being suppressed in other ways. Although even that would be a, a pretty, I, th- I think, bad move on Twitter and may perhaps Elon himself's part. Uh, what was going on? Yeah, I looked into this very carefully because I didn't want to be somebody that's just speculating as to what's going on. Because, you know, technology, as I just said, has a lot of uh, blips and, and problems. And I didn't know if this was just a glitch. Um, but so, you know, I had a number of people look at this because a bunch of people were messaging me about it. And this is, this is true. Um, I was, my name did not come up. If you searched for me, uh, my replies to other people's tweets were being hidden under the, um, additional replies tab. Um, but you know, after this huge public backlash, cause so many people were talking about this, you could look at Elon's tweets without fail. Every tweet, there were people replying about it saying, why did you censor this journalist. After all that, um, this was lifted. And so it's back to normal. Um, but for a period of time, yes, that, that is true. I wasn't, I wasn't showing up in the search. Now that's really bad. Yeah, that, that's stunning. I mean, even if it were reversed, many of the decisions that are so core to legitimate criticisms of Twitter's behavior uh, in 2020, in particular, around the Hunter Biden laptop, et cetera, were also reversed in a relatively short period of time. But I think most people understand how grave it is that those kinds of censorship choices were made in the first instance. So I'm glad it was reversed, but that is still pretty galling given how vocal Elon Musk has been about 
wanting to end exactly this kind of behavior sure. at, at Twitter. This just in, uh, according to Reuters, a senior Tesla engineer testified that a 2016 video that the company used to promote its self-driving technology was in fact staged. The video, which we're going to play for you now, is still on the company website. Uh, Ellis, Elisami Musk in Tesla, sorry, I think that's a typo, Elon, Elon Musk in Tesla didn't respond for a request uh, for comment to Reuters. Let's take a look here. Yeah, that's, that's, I think that's part of what's so frustrating. Robbie, you were saying that, you know, of course we want this technology to come into, you know, come to fruition, that there's so many reasons why regular driving is unsafe and people make human errors all the time. But if we're offered a false promise of how safe these kinds of technologies are because they're fully staged, as this video allegedly shows, where does that leave us? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I still, look, there has to be some personal responsibility here. If you, obviously, if you, I guess if you are hoodwinked into thinking that oh, the car fully takes care of itself and you can like take a little nap while it drives you exactly where you're going to go, and that's what the marketing suggests, and that's what the instruction manual suggests, then that is 100% Tesla's fault. If, But I, I don't know that that's really the case, but that's a video that maybe would make people think that. But, you know, you gotta, you got to take responsibility. Like, the car is not, it's not the technology that can just drive you wherever you want. You, like, you still have to pay attention. That's what you're supposed to do. It seems to me like that they do communicate that to you, although maybe, Ken, you think that's not quite clear enough. Yeah, I, you know, if you read through the materials, yes. Um, but um, as I think <laughs> as I think you could tell, uh, people don't really look into things very much, you know. And and again, it's the lobbying group itself is telling them, guys, you got you got to knock it off with this. It's going to create legal problems for us going going down the road. Mm, that's a pretty telling admission if your own kind of lobbying team is the one pulling the brakes. Well, but here. it could be a legal problems, right? Because I, what they have in mind is that, right, something's going to happen like somebody has one of these cars, is not paying attention, crash it, it's clearly their fault, and then they'll say, oh, well, but I'm going to sue because I didn't, you know, there's something in the instruction manual that's not quite right, and that's why I did it, even though it's your fault. Come on. No, I. Robbie, you don't think that there is a kind of a fraudulent inducement in telling people that you have something called a self-driving car when all of the other similar vehicles on the market market themselves very differently and em emphasize the extent to which it's a guided assistance as opposed to auto driving? Elon Musk right here in Ken's article is saying that he believes it's essential for the company to distinguish itself in the market by putting forward the idea that it has a self-driving car, something that the technology doesn't seem to support at this time and which isn't true, but that he's doing so that he can increase his market share and profit? You don't think that that conflict of interest is important and that consumers shouldn't be um, basically put in harm's way so that Elon Musk can edge out a few more billion dollars over his competitors? I think we're going to find out the person driving that car in the incident, Ken, uh, the video footage that he obtained was a moron and clearly should have known not to take his foot off the accelerator. But we'll find out. Ken, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Good to be with you guys. And we'll have more Rising right after this. At the World Economic Forum yesterday, former CNN anchor Brian Stelter hosted a panel on media disinformation and claimed that the U.S. has a lot to learn from potentially European Internet regulators. As part of the panel, European Commission Vice President Yara Jarova weighed in on the topic of hate speech. Let's hear what she had to say. That's illegal hate speech. 
which you will have soon also in the U.S. I think that um, we, we have a strong reason why we have this uh, in the criminal law. Uh, we, uh, we need the platforms uh, to simply work with, with the language and to identify such cases. The AI would be too dangerous. Also on the panel, the New York Times author Greg Salzberger uh, I'm so sorry. You fully said it, and I did it anyway. Uh, uh, it's not. No, it's, it's not an author. It's Arthur. Yeah, that's and his that's name. My dyslexia. They just call it. It's just A G. Oh yeah. yeah. Yep. Also on the panel, the New York Times is A G. Stoltzberger discussed the state of today's quote information ecosystem. The term fake news and then disinformation. It was popularized six years ago. At this point, where are we today versus then? What do you mean, where are we today versus then? So this was a, a, a hot, popular topic. Yeah. There was an awakening about it. The social networks felt pressure. But now where are we? And uh, same question for Jeannie. But where, where are we today uh, versus Oh, I then? see. Yeah, it's a great, uh, you know. And, and to, to be clear, actually, terms like fake news and enemy, enemies of the people have been popularized cyclically in society mm. and in, in some of the most, you know, um, you know, repressive and dangerous moments, you know, Nazi Germany, Stalinist Russia, right? Um, so, um, so I think anytime we're hearing language like that applied to, you know, a free press, um, you know, or, or more broadly free expression, I think, I think we should be um, really worried. Look, I, th I think that there's, there's, um, there's no doubt that society seems to have at some level accepted how much the information ecosystem has been poisoned. Um, and, um, and I think it's going to require real sustained effort from the platforms, from political leaders, um, from business leaders, and from consumers themselves to reject that. So I watched this entire panel. It was about mm -hmm. 45 minutes uh, last night, and I wrote about it for Reason. Uh, it was very interesting. So there were some of, of the panel members pushing back a little bit. They were grappling with the question of, well, we, on one hand, there's free speech. On the other hand, we're very worried about disinformation. What is the trade-off? So the panel members were, Brian Selter was kind of the host. And then there was that woman who is a member of the European Commission, which is the governing body of the European Union. And she was talking about what Europe has done. And, and while it sounded in that clip like she was saying, yeah, hate speech, just got to get rid of it, she did later say that, well, look, 90% of what you call misinformation or disinformation is totally legal. So you know, how much authority do we actually want to give government to police that? So it wasn't totally like she was just missing that there was no downside okay. to censorship. And then the Democratic politician was Seth Moulton, mm -hmm. who's a Democratic representative. And he basically said the same thing. He's like, look, I'm, well, he was very worried about COVID speech, like anti-vaccine speech. He's like, people are dying because of it. But I know that we have the First Amendment. Um, he, what, the most annoying thing he did was totally butcher the um, fire in a crowded theater mm. analogy, saying, you know, there are limits on free speech. You can't say fire in a crowded theater. Everyone always says that, but mm. it's not true. You can say fire in a crowded theater if there's a fire. And that, that comes from, like, a decision where the Supreme Court said you couldn't distribu uh, distribute anti-war pamphlets because that would be like shouting fire in a crowded mm. theater, which obviously is not something the Supreme Court stands by anymore mm. because you totally could do that. Mm. So I, I just hate when people bring that up, but I, I digress. But anyway, the person on the panel who was the most 
in favor of greater something to police disinformation online was Sulzberger, the publisher of the New York Times. And I think that's kind of telling. That yeah. even like the government regulators were realizing that like this is a hard question because we don't want to criminalize free speech. But the, the elite media guy was like, oh, no, this is the end of the world unless we, unless, it's all Facebook's fault. It's another permutation of the Facebook destroyed society yeah. kind of panic. I mean, it does strike me, just from that clip, there just seems to be no reckoning whatsoever with the reasons why people feel like there's so Not one so, word of that, no. So little trust in the media. I know right. it's, it's your entire job. Is, <laughs> is to be a trustworthy media source, ostensibly, yeah. and you have not interrogated why it is that so many people feel like you're not? So they, they said they think that, that incorrect information is sexier and more interesting than correct information and will always beat it. And so you need much, much stronger limits on people's ability to access incorrect information. I mean, there was, so this is the irony about meetings about disinformation or disinformation experts is they actually end up spreading tons of inaccurate information when they talk about it. Like some, some person in the audience asked a question, yeah, I'm so worried about young people consuming misinformation online and what are we doing to educate young people so that they only can see trusted sources? No one corrected this question, but it was, young people are fine. Disinformation is consumed almost exclusively by elderly people. Yeah. Young people don't need training to identify misinformation. I mean, like, you know, one in a I million mean, does. Look, yes and no. I, th I do think that we could all use a dose of media literacy education, and that's something that I think people used to get more in school and in their civics courses and things like and that. Really and not even you know, getting basic algebra and reading skills are way behind. Sure, but you know, there, it is true. I mean, as I move through the world, I know that I have to check this against that. I know about how that I have to look at the sources of studies and look at conflicts of interest. Like those are things that I think not everyone does. Um, people don't have time to do, and that's not a judgment. Mm -hmm. But, you know, there are, I think all of us could grow and become more able to discern the truth behind stories. That's, a, that's something that none of us should ever just give up to the integrity of an institution, just to say, oh, I like this place, I like these people, so they must be telling the truth. Right. Because even good people who are well-meaning can make mistakes. But our studies in, a, in our surveys show us that overwhelmingly the group of people that struggles to do that is the elderly, for sure. The elderly. <laughs> for sure. That's why Facebook became such a, yeah. a, a cesspool. But they, they're totally buying into the people on this panel. It's all downstream of the Russian misinformation, and that's why we got Trump in 2016, and everything connects to that. They said this is the problem. In fact, everything at Davos is really just kind of beating around the bush of trying to address this central problem of disinformation being too rampant on social media, which is such a limiting worldview, I think. Yeah. Well, look, the, the conversation about whether or not Europe should or should be a model is an interesting one. And not because I think that Europe ever will be a model, because we do have the First yeah. Amendment. Americans are constitutionally, both in terms of how we yeah. feel and constitutionally, literally in terms of the Constitution, just never going to let that one go. And I'm inclined to think that's probably for the best. Mm -hmm. But it is interesting that we have such an association with the First Amendment and freedom when there are peer nations that we consider to be quite free that have a very different take on how speech is handled. Yeah. Um, and it, it always, I remember when I was taking certain comparative law classes and realizing how different, frankly. Uh, other, America's other free speech climate are. is truly very unique. You know, it, it is. I think the thought experiment of, you know, does the world crumble down in, into authoritarianism if we don't have the First Amendment is, is an interesting one because that hasn't been the case in, in Europe for the, you know, for, mm -hmm. for in, in large part. Um, and I would, I would be interested in seeing people kind of um, moot out that conversation a little bit more, even if it doesn't really actually mean anything for uh, what our laws can be. I think Lynn Greenwald has gotten into a little bit of hot water for having this conversation because 
Brazil's laws are much more restrictive with respect to speech. They are able to you know, censor all, a much more expansive variety of speech than we are here. And he obviously comes with American sensibility and different preferences. And there have been some tensions about in, in the country and with the reporting where people have characterized um, some of his perspective about the Brazilian laws um, as being anti individuals involved, anti-Lula, let's say, as opposed to saying, well, I'm an American, I just happen to think that we should be free speechier than that they have in Brazil. It's not that Lula is especially authoritarian or anything, but I just feel differently about how they do it there. And I think we, if we had more comparative law conversations about how other countries do things, I think those kind of misunderstandings mm -hmm. about what um, Glenn's criticism actually was wouldn't be so rampant. Mm -hmm. But there are, I mean, I've heard even, uh, I think, progressives point out that there are downsides to some of the limiting free speech stuff, even in our sort of European counterpart countries in Australia, where it's much harder to hold powerful people to account because mm. it's so easy to sue someone mm. uh, for uh, the libel and, libel and defamation, much harder here in the U.S., actually, mm. because there's a high bar to being able to criticize public officials that they don't have in Australia, for example. Interesting. Um, what I was really struck by at the end, they turned again to Sulzberger, which... You know, I, I'm, I'm not like I, I like a lot of what appears in the New York Times. I dislike a lot of it. Um, I don't mean to bully or pick on him or the New York Times, but I think it was pretty telling how how much his mindset was about like there's nothing we can do until until social media and he particularly means Facebook is destroyed because there's no way good the the light cannot beat out the dark. As long as that company will, is just doing whatever it can, he's just mad they it's, stole his advertising dollars. But when you're listening, to, right? And when you're listening to him, he, there's no acknowledgement of the fact. What you're saying is you want. I mean, he he said he wants Facebook to prioritize trusted sources and deprioritize other stuff. So what he's in a sense saying is the fate of the world rests on on Facebook giving the New York Times free advertisement. That's what he's saying. And that's a pervasive worldview that's, I think, Right, dictated, at Davos, it's very pervasive. And it's dictated a lot of what these algorithmic changes have been over the years that have hurt small, independent media sources and everybody who isn't MSNBC, Fox News, New York Times, et cetera. If, if you are a creator, if you're a content creator, if you're an independent journalist mm -hmm. and you put something on YouTube, you are just not getting... 10 years ago, you could get yeah. 50, you know, 500 million subscribers. You could grow quickly if your content was good. These days, you can be disappeared from the app because there is such, such a strong preference for authorized media. And this preference is being pushed on these social media companies by elite media, by certain political figures, mm -hmm. by... By the FBI mm -hmm. and the CDC, mm -hmm. and like it's not being freely chosen in yeah. a lot of cases by these companies, and th I think that's a really bad. We agree that that's a really bad thing. Yeah. That's something everyone outside of the elite consensus should be very worried about. Yeah. And uh, but it's it's the popular opinion for how to proceed at Davos. So yeah. Mm. Mm. All right, we'll continue to follow everything going on there because we think it's important and you deserve to know about it. And we'll have more rising right after this. Between those of us that think that individuals and families and nations should be able to determine their own identity, and a group of other people that think it should be worked out by by the elites. supposedly smart elites, yeah, right. working out of think tanks and UN meetings and and business conferences, and you know, Elon, you know, it's, he's a complicated person, and I've gotten to know him a little bit, but I mean. What I would say is I think he's seen the dark side of that hyper-wokeism, and his purchase of Twitter is maybe the most significant thing he's done because he's— I think so, too. 
basically said ordinary people should be on an equal platform to communicate as elites, and we should stop censoring ordinary folks um, because the elites demand it. That was Twitter Files journalist Michael Schellenberger on with Glenn Beck talking about the World Economic Forum, to which Twitter CEO Elon Musk replied, citizen journalism is vital to the future of civilization. These, these stories are tough because I agree with everything said. Mm -hmm. That would be great. I would like it for Elon Musk to pursue those goals. But elsewhere on the show today, we interviewed Ken Klippenstein about a story that he reported about a malfunctioning autopilot on these Teslas that caused a significant pileup where I think nine people, including a child, was injured. And because of reporting on that story, he was no longer searchable on Twitter and his account and the story were suppressed. And in light of that rank hypocrisy, likes of which we've seen now several times in the short tenure that Elon Musk has been on this app, in terms of censoring journal journalists that were reporting on you know, the whole story about his Elon Musk jet and all of that, some of whom remain off the app, by the way. You know, I don't know how many times things like this can happen while he's still allowed to present himself as someone who's advocating for what I believe sincerely are important speech interests. Well, as I said, when we talked with Ken, I, that was just inexcusable yeah. to uh, do that to his account, um, even though I had a slightly different take on the so actual self-driving car incident. Yeah, uh, you know, he's a, he's a rich, powerful person as well, uh, and he has lots of incentives, and some of them will not always be for the platform having rules the way we want them to be. Uh, so I, I think it's, it's, his, it's his appropriate fiefdom, to continue you know? to Alex call Jones those out. Alex Jones doesn't get to come back to Twitter, not because of any principled mm -hmm. stance that's generally apl applicable to everyone in the same scenario, but because Elon Musk tragically suffered the loss of a child. Alex Jones lied about the death and murder of children. Therefore, he has a personal grievance with Alex Jones. I don't have any interest in defending Alex Jones. I think that what he did was also unconscionable, but it's just not consistent. Kanye West was kicked off the app. I can't remember if he's back or not. It was He was kicked off so many times for so many different things. It was a real yo-yo situation, but the ultimate um, transgression was posting that weird swastika a, amalgam star of david thing which was yes offensive i don't like it but what is the rationale behind him posting that symbol and getting kicked off the app are we are you not allowed to post symbols on on twitter there's swastikas and confederate flags and all kinds of things all over twitter if you google it right now what what is actually the standard being applied here this is why it just it cannot come down to putting one individual CEO, billionaire, great man type figure on a pedestal and expecting that genius and consistency is just going to pour out of his mind. There's a reason why we have groups of people, panels, organizations, think tank, like people who are involved en masse and coming up with rules because this stuff is legitimately hard and Elon shouldn't want to take all that, all that responsibility on himself in the first place. It's just too much. Yeah, no, it is hard. Um, I also wanted to talk about uh, something else Schellenberger was pointing out on Twitter. Can we pull up that tweet I asked for? So, you know, he was saying that, like, so you're treated as a conspiracy theorist if you say that the World Economic Forum just wants people to subsist on eating bugs, which I, I think there's a grain of truth to people uh, criticizing those who say, like, that's 
the only agenda that the World Economic Forum has. Like, that's all they're meeting to do is discuss ways to, like, I don't know, shovel crickets into your sandwich. <laughs> it's not actually what it's all about. However, he did have, he, he, so then he got a fact check, I think, from the Associated Press saying, you know, the, the popular claim that the World Economic Forum wants people to replace me with bugs is a distorted reference to an article once published on the organization's website that was then deleted. And Schellenberger was, well, why would they delete it if mm-hmm. they, and then he, but then he's pointing out that there's tons of videos mm-hmm. on YouTube, other places linked to the World Economic Forum of people, you know, talking about that idea. And, and look, that is a, that is an idea. It, you know, if people want to do that for sustainable reasons, I don't care. It's, I don't think it should be shoved on anyone. I don't, again, I don't want to think our gas stove should be replaced, et cetera. If you want to, that's fine. It should just be a voluntary idea or, not, or a policy idea that it's come up with and then is put to whatever the relevant decision makers are in the country, as he was saying to Glenn Beck. Like, we still get to the nation state, the people, the voters get to decide, um, uh, or, or even a smaller unit than that. Uh, so I, I thought it was a, a funny example of another one of those fact checks that yeah. actually is yeah. further confusing the matter rather than adding any clarity, yeah. which is the whole problem with this gatekeeping information that Davos is so beloved of. Well, let me ask you this, Robbie. I mean, we've we've talked now for several segments today about what to do about misinformation. Obviously, so many people at these panels at Davos are interested in this question, whether or not they engage with it in the way that we think is substantive and good. But do you think there is really actually a problem here, or this is just, as one of the guests at the Gavo panel we discussed earlier, is it just a cyclical thing? The idea of misinformation comes up routinely. Um, there's nothing in particular to worry about here. We're just in a period of realignment because of new forms of media. There's a changing of the guard. We lived through a kind of a unique political moment in 2016. Trump was a unique candidate, and that caused people to have a crisis of faith in institutions that isn't necessarily reflective of anything other than Trump was anomalous and interesting? Um, or is there, think of there there, a, a real issue where there's potentially an information gap that is bigger between different parts of the population than has existed before and that the nature of social media is causing misinformation to be able to circulate, mm-hmm. actual wrong things to circulate at a greater speed um, with more perceived authority and that is actually harmful to society? I think it is unlikely that people in modern society are more misinformed than they were before. We're, it, the way it's talked about is as if there's been a great like stupefying going mm-hmm. on. Like everyone is so much dumber, except for the, you know, latte swilling. Except for those New of York us on Times. Twitter, right? <laughs> everyone else is dumber than ever before. I think that's unlikely. I mean, we have to remember that, like, not even that long ago, like a lot of people, most people believed in. You know, some form of like witchcraft or something. Sure. You know, believe, it, people believe all sorts of kooky things, superstitious things, uh, or or you know, conspiracy theories about you know, historical, the moon landing, whatever. Like that was that's so common to the American DNA. Uh, I, I don't. I, people are probably better informed than they are today. In fact, I think there's like polling results to show that. But it is true that we're more exposed to what other people think than we were before, because before Facebook and social media, it was just harder to know what your neighbors, whatever around you thought about things. Now we know much better, and we find out that a lot of people know or think some things that are wrong and dumb. I don't think it's it's greater than it was before. I think it's probably less. We just know more about each other's beliefs. We know more about each other's beliefs, and we're horrified by what we're learning. (laughs) And look, I think it's undoubtedly true that there is mis there is bad information spreading online. And there are, will be examples of times where that has caused people 
to do something bad for their health or make a bad decision because they absorb bad information. You know, right now there's been a lot of uh, going around uh, about um, heart attacks and uh, heart attack deaths, and is it linked to the Hashtag COVID vaccine? He died suddenly. Yeah, yeah. And then you looked, you know, people I've tried, you know, Jesse Single looked at this, Mike Cernovich looked at this. This is a, you know, a, a figure that is pretty popular in, I, I would say, right wing contrarian circles. And you can read his Substack. Um, if you, there'd be probably a lot of people trust him, read his Substack. He looked at this, this and concluded what Jesse Single concluded, what so many others, is that. A lot of these people in this list of supposed like heart attack deaths, they didn't even die of heart attacks. Mm-hmm. They died in car crashes. Mm-hmm. They just—it's—it's—it's it's, um, bad. It is bad information. Mm-hmm. So I think that is a problem. But With, the solutions yeah. being put on the table that we just—well, then we're just going to restrict. We're going to deputize some authority to decide what we're allowed to see and to read. Just goes goes awry so easily and has gone awry. I mean, the fa- the fact checkers on Facebook are terrible organizations. They get things wrong all the time. Yeah, I think there is something to the idea of having enough ideological diversity within a political community that you can have someone that's considered to be a trusted source mm-hmm. correct within the community. Yeah. You know, the fact that there is a Cernovich or a Jesse Single or someone who can push back is important. I guess the worry is what happens when people are so siloed and communities are so homogenous that that doesn't happen. And I do worry, I do think that there is more, frankly, ideological diversity for what it's worth, on the right. And we see this with what has been happening in Congress than there is among the liberal left. I think the left left Mm -hmm. is very much siloed and small and out of the public view. Um, And so the big mass of liberals, oh boy. I I mean, I was listening to an episode of Pod Save America last night, and it's just really incredible stuff. It's just sometimes I forget how different and how out of touch from my obviously subjective perspective they are about political events like the McCarthy speaker's race um, and I, I worry about what that's what that means, um, what that means for political movements, what that means for big populist coalitions to be able to come together and actually focus on the enemy that I think we both agree on, which is genuine corporate elites that are bipartisan. And so I don't know. I think it's worth. I'm, I'm glad we're talking about it. It isn't easy. I never wanted to make make it sound like if I'm critical of no, Elon yeah, or anybody yeah, else that it's yeah. easy. I just want I always want to avoid the excessive, I think, pessimism of the things are worse than ever, disinformation, we can't grapple with it. Like even the siloing problem like being siloed is probably the natural condition of human beings. Like most human beings, sure, we're not you know, live, to know this many people. <laughs> li- right, no, they live. You lived in a village. You yeah. knew your family and your neighbors, and you hated people who didn't look like you and sure. didn't follow your beliefs. You hated them. You hated people in the other village. You wouldn't have even known about people in other countries. You would have hated them. Uh, social media broadly has ex- has exposed people to more experiences. It has had an unsiloing effect. Uh, if, if you look at it in a historical time frame, and I just think that's important to keep in mind as people, you know, gather, as the elites gather to decide what new regulations are going to be forced on us. Yeah, to it's true. Otherwise, I would never have all this access to these amazing Korean interior design videos that I love so much. <laughs> 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 all right, we'll have a rising for you after this. Well, this is the reason why this kind of transparent reporting is going to be so important. There is a way for us to look at death certificates and also to look at the medical records of individuals prior to their death. And I think this needs to be separated into three categories. One is the um, the COVID as a direct contributor, the primary cause of death. The second is, could it be a secondary contributing cause? So for example, somebody with kidney disease, COVID then pushes them over the edge to have kidney failure. That's COVID as a contributing 
cause. And then the third is COVID as an incidental finding. So somebody coming in with a gunshot wound or a heart attack and they happen to test positive. I think that we need to separate out and look at the percentages of each. That percentage would have shifted over time as well. In the beginning, probably a lot more people were dying with the primary cause of COVID. That probably has shifted. And I think, again, we need to understand this. Another reason to understand this, too, is a lot of people are wondering when they should get a booster next. When do we need a second booster or another booster? And the only way we can know for sure is to understand who is getting severely ill and when. That was CNN medical analyst Dr. Liana Wen, based Liana Wen, as I call her, <laughs> singing a very different tune than you might remember. Dr. Wen, who's also a columnist for The Washington Post, recently wrote an op-ed for the paper hammering the point that the number of deaths reported as being caused by COVID far exceed the amount of people who are actually dying as a result of COVID infection. Despite her 180, when previously was a staunch supporter of most, if not all, of the COVID rules, mandates, and restrictions, and she changed her mind later. Um, so her turn, her abrupt, you know, about face is not being received well by some in the COVID skeptic community, and then also some who were in her community previously. She almost pleases no one by uh, by switching. Although she's pleased me for I, saying things that now I'm to look. She, I, I didn't agree with her, and now I do agree with her. So I, I, I what saw, do you want me to say? I saw you tweeting. This is based in a win, and I saw some of your followers. You're like, no, I can't. Absolutely not. It would have been based two years ago. This is what's confusing me about this story. This seems like kind of obvious that there are some people who have COVID who are hospitalized for other reasons. And there's some people who are hospitalized because they have COVID. And to me, the presumption for me, when all of these numbers are being reported, mm -hmm. is that everyone understands that to be the case. And that when they're reporting COVID deaths, they should be reporting deaths from COVID. So the, the, the scandal, it seems to me, it's not that anyone is denying the possibility that there were many people who would be hospitalized with COVID but not die from COVID or hospitalized because of COVID, but that apparently there was no disaggregation when all of these newspapers were reporting on this before. I think a lot of folks would find that fact to be shocking because there was, at least if I think about my own perspective, there wasn't like a a desire to misrepresent COVID deaths, I would I would want to know who actually died from COVID to know how dangerous people, the disease was. For for two years, people in, in what we're calling the contrarian or the skeptic community would say exactly what Leanna Wen is saying there, and say, well, even if it if they that it might, it's not not all these deaths are directly attributable to COVID itself, and you are kind of mocked for doing that or you you were said like does it really matter I, I remember hearing a lot of that like you're trying to quibble and know exactly what there's no way to tell exactly what mm. killed you even though in some of these cases it really you could tell if it was a car crash it was a gunshot and they sure. just happened to have covid so I, mean, I, I had an elderly relative go to the hospital a couple uh, months ago and then while he was in the hospital he tested positive for covid it had nothing to do with why mm. he was there yeah well especially now that people are vaccinated and the likelihood of dying from COVID are much lower. I, I can understand why, you know, it, it, it doesn't seem as, mm -hmm. I don't know, it's, it's not that it's not as significant, but it's not as pressing as it was well, the, in the early the day. 400, the 400 a day number is, is really scary to people because that's a lot of people. But we don't want people to get the wrongful impression that you could, if you just catch it, you could be one of those 400 people. Well, that's, that's what I'm asking. So in the Washington Post article, Leanna Wynn's article, it's also not clear to me so what actually so the idea of there being a gap between mm -hmm. what was reported and who was actually dying from covid fine 
But what do we actually know about how big that gap was and how much the overcounting was? Because that seems to me to be a really crucial part of the so story. So in her what? She includes a, a chart that is from July 2022 to July 2023, in which only about 10 percent of the, you know, it shows Massachusetts tracking yeah. how many people were hospitalized from COVID versus hospitalized for COVID. And it's only about 30 percent of total hospitalizations with COVID were primarily attributed to the virus. But that's not saying anything about, one, what the death ratios were and hospitalization from COVID ratios were back when people were not vaccinated and more people were dying from COVID. And that also doesn't say um, you know, much about how that relates to the numbers that we see about the risk, the risk factors of being hospitalized because of COVID overall. So in her article, she goes into much greater detail and she cites uh, Shira Doran, who is an infectious disease physician, who is trying to figure out this, answer this question, how do we figure out exactly how many people have severe illness due to COVID? And what she said, if, the, if you're in the hospital for COVID, you're very likely to be prescribed a steroid, uh, dexamethasone, I'm probably saying that wrong, dexamethasone, I won't even yeah. try again. Anyway, so if you're given that, you're probably in the hospital for COVID itself. Right. That, uh, and she said that, um, that... That's what this chart is about. The chart right. is, Doran's work informed the, char the chart, where we just see for Massachusetts, but we can generalize a little bit here. Yeah. And that's where we get the 30% So she said that's 30%, yeah. But I guess what I'm saying is... So I don't understand what you're asking. Okay, so there's, there's, this is overcounting between people who are hospitalized from COVID versus mm -hmm. hospitalized for other things that happen to have COVID. One, this doesn't tell us about whether or not deaths from COVID are actually being overcounted. Right? Like, there's no deaths from COVID on this chart. It's patients primarily hospitalized for COVID, number of hospital patients with the coronavirus. It's also for a really recent period of time where deaths from COVID are overall smaller than they were before the, for, before mm -hmm. the vaccines. And what we really want to know, I think, that what would be really misleading is if during the time when we were being told that so many people were being hospitalized and dying from COVID because there were no vaccines, if during that time, in fact, very few people were actually dying of COVID, that would be really, really big news. Sure. I don't think Leanna Wen is definitely not claiming that. This article is not claiming that. What they're claiming is now, with the 400 deaths a day number, whatever it is, some, somewhere around there, it was that within the last couple of weeks, I think they're saying a significant chunk of those based on the 30% number, the 90%, other th variables they're coming up with to look at how many of these people are very sick from COVID itself probably a significant majority of those people are dying for some other reason. But, how do, what but also, how do we know that? I mean, how do we know that? Well, that the, would be extrapolating from. But, but I don't know that that's, I, look, I have nothing against whatever the outcome is. I, I have no dog in this fight, but I need, I need reporting on how the people who are coming up with today's numbers are actually coming up with today's numbers, not just a chart that compares people who have COVID versus people who, who you know, are hospitalized for COVID. Well, right now, I think it's just it's just being counted if they had COVID. But that's I, I think. I, okay. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's yeah. that's all I'm saying. So I would like to see some more reporting on this because I would be you know if at this point people are still counting someone who comes in with a gunshot wound who happens to test positive from COVID as a COVID death. That's obviously ridiculous, right? Yeah. But are people actually still doing this at this point? <laughs> Again, I think. But it, it sounds to me like the answer was that was always the case. But earlier on in the pandemic, the pandemic and for a long run, you're going to have those were going to be few and far between incident, given how many people actually, actually were dying yeah. of covid elderly people, immunocompromised people, no vaccines, no protection, no prior infection. All that stuff was adding up to a lot of people actually dying of covid. Mm -hmm. That is now greatly diminished because so many people have some kind of protection, either from vaccine or prior infection or both. 
Uh, so, so now we just don't want people to think, we don't want people to be unnecessarily scared. COVID can still cause you serious disease and even death, particularly if you don't have protection or you're elderly or right. you're immunocompromised. Plus there's a lot of COVID of it all. The, right, that's a different matter. But the, the, the idea that an otherwise extremely healthy person is so unlikely to end up in that 400 deaths category is like extremely unlikely. From what we're because it, that 400 is first of all talking about a lot of people who didn't actually die of COVID, and then for and then yeah sure I just I, I do wish this had been I don't know just a, a little more reported and I'm sure we'll we'll see more of these numbers mm-hmm. um, but what does that mean does that mean that 380 of those people actually died of COVID but only 200 of those people actually died of COVID and what, how do those death rates compare to other kinds of illnesses that we kind of live with like the flu. You know, I mean, I think what Leanna Wen is suggesting is that it, it's it's more than that. It's the the vast majority. Yeah, suggesting that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I just I just want a little bit more firm, firmness. I guess I also just want to ask you: Are you surprised at all, given how I know that you've spoken a lot about how Leanna Wen was very much on the other side of a lot of these issues um, with respect to COVID reporting? To what do you attribute? Is this really an about face, or are people evolving as they learn more things? I mean, her explanation. So there was a personal component of her explanation, mm-hmm. which is, it sounds like she really got fed up with. She said the virtual learning, remote learning for her young kids was bad, was mm-hmm. a bad experience, and she thinks they are definitely behind because of it. Uh, what she also said is that once Omicron came out, it was just it was so infectious, so able to evade all the protections we can assemble. Given that vaccines were readily available, it, the 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 ability to really really try as a society to have a lot of mitigation and 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 crush COVID, she said, is just, it's just not realistic mm. anymore, and that has Fair caused enough. a lot of her different thinking. Well, interesting positive positive news for the people who have wanted a lot more clarity um, and diversity in COVID reporting and the mainstream news. I hope to see more of it, and we'll have more rising for you after this. The U.S. government wants to reinstate mask mandates in airplanes, buses, trains, ride-sharing services, and at airports. At least they want the authority to do that. On Tuesday, the Justice Department asked an appeals court to reverse an April 20th ruling that struck down the nationwide federal order mandating masks put in place after President Biden got into the White House. Mm. Those arguing for re-implementing masking are arguing it's necessary to prevent the spread of infection, while those opposing contend that it's not an urgent matter. So I think the main thing here is basically the government wants to argue that it has this power, first of all. Mm. It's not necessarily the case that they want to immediately reimpose mm. these mandates, but they, they want the ability to do that. And the appeals court said that the previous um, uh, mandate for masks uh, was hasty and did there was no public comment period on it, mm-hmm. and uh, and the government's trying to argue. Well, that's fine. We we we, can't, we don't can't bother to ask the public. It was it was an emergency. We they can't wait in an emergency, and that's why they've had trouble prevailing, <laughs> uh, essentially. So the idea is that now, if they appeal and have the notice and comment period, mm-hmm. they could prevail on having the authority whether or not they want to actually implement the mandates again. That's what they're hoping for. I mean, it's interesting. I, I do think, I mean, I'm sure we can both imagine a health crisis with a very virulent and deadly virus that would compel some kind of mask mandate. I mean, if a million Americans show with Ebola, do we want there to be no, the government to not be empowered to do something about it to keep it from spreading all across the country? Mm. The question is whether or not COVID actually meets that metric. What if there was this, not entirely fake, but extremely 
overhyped, overdramatized threat. Let's call it terrorism. And they decided to make everyone take off their shoes and their belts and arrive at the airport two and a half hours early and not bring any liquids and take apart your laptop. And it's really hard to travel with kids or with people in wheelchairs. And it's just horrible. And it goes on for 25 years now almost. Well, let me ask you this, Robbie. Do you really think that the idea of there being any public health intervention that requires people to do anything that to stop the spread of a disease is at all times wrong. Do you think no, there shouldn't be not. vaccinations for kids to go to school, for instance, to get their measles, mump, rubella? I mean, whenever possible, I want to make this voluntary. I want to make it option, an option right, for families those and parents. Those vaccines but, aren't optional for people yeah. who want to send their kids to public schools. Yeah, I, I think there was a much a stronger argument for mandating uh, vaccines that are actually prevent outbreaks of cases of various diseases where right, it's going to Right, but that's, that's give, what I'm getting yeah, at. Yeah. I'm not talking about COVID. Right. I'm saying that if this really is about the government having the authority to act if something does happen, that seems to be, me to be a lot more reasonable than saying this is necessary now mm -hmm. because of COVID. And that's debatable, too. But I'm just saying if this really is about – if the government right now is disempowered from – passing these, I think they were described as hygiene laws, mm -hmm. if there were to be an outbreak that everyone agreed was legitimate, even though I know there's disagreement about whether COVID is, you know, it is a, it's a little but, scary to think that because of COVID, the government's hand might be tied. Well, I get that. But shouldn't then it be incumbent on them to act a little bit more responsibly, to earn our trust? To make us say, you know what, if there was a true emergency, the government wouldn't, over wouldn't overreact. It would put in sane policies and then it would relax them when they were no longer necessary. And I look at air travel especially, and I, they have done the opposite of that. They have left in place. I'm not even talking about COVID now. I'm talking about the Patriot Act stuff, the TSA yeah, I, stuff. Yeah, I agree. The TSA they, can kick rocks. They, no, right. And I know you agree on that. But that... That makes me, I think, quite rationally say they cannot be trusted with more power. I, I, I They'll understand, make us do I understand dumb concern, things. But let me ask you the hypothetical. Yeah. Tomorrow, here comes a bullet. Like, I understand. So, so America right. has to do what? Spend 5, 10, 20, 50 years of not having any overreach before it's allowed to regain the power to mm -hmm. implement what could be life-saving and very time-contingent hygiene laws? Yeah, maybe they'll think uh, they'll think a little bit next time before they approve something like the Patriot Act. Well, I, I hope that in that next 5, 10, 15, 50 years that we don't have an outbreak that actually requires the government to act I quickly. think an outbreak would have to be pretty catastrophic to be worse than what they have put us all through in terms of our, the, the waste, the threat to our civil liberties, the, the permanent 9-11 state. All of that stuff was so bad and so destructive. It's... The, the TSA is bad, but, yeah. you know... I know you're not I, arguing I, I otherwise. Do, I do I'm think just... that, you know, smallpox, you know, polio were worse. Yeah. And if we were confronted with one of those threats, it seems to me to be, like, there's a very reasonable government public interest in having the government have the authority to do it, even mm -hmm. if it still has to prove its case on the individual mandate law when mm -hmm. actually promulgated. Mm -hmm. But the problem... And the problem with... They were stripped of this authority because they didn't... Subjected to notice and comment. I mean, again, you and you could say notice and comment is bad and gets in the way of the emergency. Well, then a Congress is supposed to vote to get rid of that. Like they, what we're saying is, the CDC and agencies like them don't just—they just aren't—they're not the government. They don't get to make up policy as they go along. They have rules that the the, the represent the representatives of the people decide the rules and then they implement them. And we're just we're governing by by bureaucratic fiat at this point. Well, look, I hope you're right that if there were an emergency that they could pass a law to, to do what needed to be done. Look, with respect to um, 
air travel uh, and masking and all of that, you know, I am somewhat reassured that high quality masks exist and one-way masking, it's not as good as two-way masking, but it's better than not having that. And there are these trade-offs between individual uh, liberties and public safety. I want a world where everyone has, it's made easier for folks to mask when they make that choice. And so I do wish we lived in a world like other countries where you're mailed high quality masks, which are not cheap, which can cost as much as people's hourly minimum wage salaries for a pack, a pack with not very many in it, to be honest, for these high quality masks. I wish, I mean, Biden just, he reinstated the, um, some of the free COVID testing, but we're also seeing that the price of these vaccines is about to skyrocket. Moderna is planning to mark up the price of its COVID vaccine by 400% after the taxpayers have invested. There's so many zeros here, I'm having a hard time counting. I guess that's $2.5 billion to help develop it and made $19 billion in profits over the last two years. You know, that's, I mean, all of that stuff is going on. And I, I sometimes think that this, well, I don't want to wear a mask. Like, okay, don't. But like, take some of that energy and put it into, are you basically rooting for the government to abandon you to what can be like a real threat to your health? Don't wear a mask. Are you going to care about the government investing in air purification systems the way that they're focusing on in other countries? Are you going to actually ask for the government not to advocate their authority to help to protect you at the same time that's giving hand over fist, money hand over fist to these private entities that are doing its bidding? Like, Decisions are being made against the public health interests, not just because people want to be authoritarian, but because corporations want to make money and they don't actually give a crap about what happens to people. And there's all of this really good, healthy energy, this anti-establishment energy on the right, and just too often it's just caught up in these weird cycles of, I want to breathe the air on the plane. Breathe the air on the plane. But freedom means having the choice to do the opposite, too. And if you're constrained financially from doing that, then that's not real freedom either. And there can be, I would have no problem with, there can be flights where everyone on the flight is mad, they, you know, take that flight if you want the mass, there could be the mass flight and the not mass flight, or the, the, the flighting where masking is required and the flighting where it's, op- the, the, where it's optional, that's fine with me. Um, I don't know that's fine with the airline companies. They're already having schedule. I mean, look, well, theoretically, if there was Southwest enough people interested in that, they would ride it. No, it's a scheduling issue. Southwest can barely, it's had two million planes, two million people grounded a month ago over the holidays because it's using uh, anachronistic scheduling technology from the 80s because it's spent all its money on uh, pay- dividend payments to its shareholders that have been investing in the company and updating like the, all the other airlines. So I, I, I doubt that they're going to be suddenly very concerned with the customer experience as they're charging us $40 a bag. And <laughs> Although I was looking at this article uh, from Fox Business, apparently the, remember when we were hearing all the stories about unruly, angry airline passengers? This ar- article is arguing, and you might feel differently or, you know, who knows, but the incident rate of incidents of unruly passengers has actually gone way down now that there's no longer mask requirements. And they think I believe that. But look, Robbie, it's not just organic. There's there are culture wars. People are being pitted against each other over issues that they're told to care a lot about on both sides. I'm, I'm saying there's a lot. There was liberal hand wringing about masks that was moralizing and also really inconsistent. I observed, still out there. <laughs> I, I observed going in when, when I, when everyone was still, when a lot of people were still masking more seriously, I would observe going into like a liberal space, a liberal coded space. And everyone took their masks off as though it's like safe to be here with the safe people as though that's how the virus works. And then being very precious about their masks and other kinds of more mixed politically 
red coded spaces, public transportation, lower income spaces, things like that. And that's ridiculous. But that's not people waking up one day and, and like adopting all of these preferences. The media, the media fomented this war. And we, it could have fomented a war about what, are, what is the people's access to tools that can protect them. Let's be mad at the CDC for lying to us about the eff- efficacy of masks, masks because it wanted to protect, just to, to save the product for healthcare workers, which is a legitimate goal. But you're not allowed to lie to people, lie to people they for lied that sort about of thing. It. And also, that's covering up for the government's inability to produce things at home and to have proper stockpiles of necessary public health. Um, um, equipment, like this protective gear, you know, Mm -hmm. all of that. We're just covering for all the wrong people. I don't know. It's very frustrating to me. And all those people blame you for for spreading disinformation, even though they were fine with Dr. Fauci literally lying about about whether masks were effective or not. 100%. That did more damage, I got to say, to the mask discourse. If liberals want someone to be Mm -hmm. mad about, then you know, the next two months of ambivalence from Republicans at the beginning of the pandemic. Because at the beginning of the pandemic, there was a lot of solidarity. I got to say, people were willing to do a lot, stay home, do the best to bury this thing. Trump was president. Even he was saying that people needed to get in line and people were largely following it. And then enter the media and then enter self-interested politicos and everything has gone to hell in a handbasket since Mm -hmm. then. Indeed. All right. We will have more rising in just a minute. Stay tuned. Podcaster Joe Rogan is calling out radio personality Howard Stern for being too woke. Rogan said when Stern was the king of all media and he was telling everybody to suck his blank and the FCC was going after him, the government was fining him. They were fining his business, uh, effing millions of dollars. And now he's woke. It's crazy. Is it true, Robbie? Has uh, Howard Stern gone gone the way of the wokasaur? (laughs) <laughs> what? I don't know. I'm just trying something new out. <laughs> okay. Um, so I uh, have never actually listened to very much Howard Stern. Mm-hmm. So if he has, I'm not particularly familiar with it. So I looked at what you know conservatives, anti-woke people are saying. I'm reading this OutKick article that I, I think the big thing is he was extremely and continues to be extremely um, COVID cautious, extremely I guess even just germ averse. Like uh, Bill Maher on a recent episode said, he just expects he'll never see the guy again because he never leaves his house because mm-hmm. uh, he's really COVID afraid. And I, I guess that colored his opinions about COVID, where they would have expected him to be really against government mandated overreach. Um, he was extremely supportive of it. And there are some other kind of random things. I, I believe he apologized for a blackface incident yes. previously. Yeah. So what's so funny about that story is that apparently, so I don't know if you remember this, Robbie, might've been too young, but back in the I'm day. I'm getting a lot of the Robbie, you were too young <laughs> this week. And I do not hate it. I do not hate it. It's projection from how the rest of us old heads are feeling, but it, Okay, Whoopi Goldberg and Ted Danson used to date. I, I know that. Okay, and there was an untelevised uh, award event. I remember when she did whiteface in which, awards thing. Well, she, he did blackface. Apparently, at her urging, they thought it was going to be a funny joke. There are pictures of it. The public found it to be less funny than they did. Now, keep in mind, I think this was the 80s. So the idea that, like, you could do things then that you can't do now. I mean, mm-hmm. back then, there was a pretty generalized understanding that blackface was a bad idea. Apparently, Howard Stern, who's kind of 
uh, co-host kind of person, Robin, is a black woman, they recreated that costume where he was in blackface and she was the Whoopi, Whoopi Goldberg character in this. And he got backlash for that. That was um, in a television, I think that was back oh. in 1993. Well, but they were making fun of them for doing exactly. it, so it's not really... Exactly. So his apology is kind of like, he says basically, would I have satirized um, Ted Danson's behavior and made fun of it if I had it to do again? Yes. Would I do it by literally dressing up as, uh, dressing up as him and like... Hmm. you know, causing the same offense? No, I wouldn't, I would have chosen it differently. So I mean, like when you look at examples like that, what's the question? Like, are we saying that he's not allowed to have evolved his opinion on that? Are social mores not allowed to change? Are people not allowed to respond to social mores? He used to, he's been in this business for a really long time, over 30, 40 careers as a radio shock jock. Is he allowed to mellow out, get older, change his opinion? Is it really that he's succumbing to woke culture or is he just like, a guy in his 60s now, or, or, or whatever he is, who feels differently about how he relates to the world. But I guess there is this uh, idea that people like Howard Stern, who were who used profanity, who were crass, who who discussed race and sex, and maybe said offensive things or politically incorrect things. That was important to the pushback against the FCC against what used to be actual very real prohibitions on mm -hmm. saying certain things on radio, on TV, et cetera. There used to be a lot more um, uh, government uh, pr prevention of free speech. So there's a long history of using speech that is offensive, not because offending people is good, but because you ought to have the right to say offensive things. And yeah, there's like a lot of- Porn, the, have a First Amendment law. Porn, porn. or, or the, the, draw, the drawing Muhammad, the Charlie Hebdo yeah. people, you know, is it, it's not, it's not because it's a it's an unqualified good to mock the religious beliefs of Muslim people. Right. It's because it, it's been prohibited, or there are little literally people trying to kill you for doing it. So then it becomes a, a free speech but, but, point. But Howard Stern having all of that pushback because he had a different style twenty years ago than he does today. Does that obligate him to stick with the same kind of humor he had when he was in his twenties or thirties for the rest of his life? I mean, like, what are we really asking of people here? I can look back at things that I said and thought and believed when I was in college that I find to be abhorrent today because that's what the social mores were. I said things that I don't want to say today because I, not because of any social pressure in the world, genuinely don't want to cause people who I care about offense. I don't want to be mean. I, I don't want to, to be Google rude. Remember to Google Brianna Joy Gray's college offense later. <laughs> no. But you know what I mean? Like, back, back when I was in college, people, I mean, I was never really in this camp, but, like, people all the time made comments about gay people and gay people were the budget, bunch, uh, butt of jokes and used the F word. And, and, and yeah, like, nobody, almost nobody was out in college. Like, and that was just 15 years ago. Things have changed a lot. And there's a difference between, I think, some legitimate critique of, like, woke overreach where people who maybe have not caught up with the latest thing and are, are a little awkward with pronouns or whatever it is are told that they're bigoted, horrible people who need to be banished from society because yeah, they haven't kept up. Yeah, that's criticism of wokeness. That's fine. Like that, I understand that critique. Mm -hmm. But there's this other thing where this, this wokeness slippage means anybody who evolves or changes or wants to not offend or just wants to be nice because they live in a society and world the world evolves or they've grown out of their toilet humor of their youth is somehow being oppressed by like Big Brother. I mean, like it's well, there's a that, ridiculous. and then there's you know the university saying 
no more. It's it's now it's no longer field. Sure, but work. that's it's not what we're talking no, about yeah, here. Yeah. This is this is the slippage I'm together. talking about. It all gets lumped and, together. And I think that it hurts. It hurts people because it's like there are ways that people change that are good, right? Like. Are we saying that we want our social expectations and mores to be exactly what they were in 1956? Mm-hmm. Are we supposed to think, you know, what? who's the NFL coach that just got in trouble for being in the picture where he was, you know, shouting down all the black kids that were trying to integrate the school? Are we saying if, if he changed his beliefs from 1956 to now, which he averts that he has done, that that's bad, that he's succumbing to woke culture? Or is no, it good that no, like, no, he's no, not no, a racist no, anymore? No. <laughs> you know? I, I think... The interesting thing people are trying to point out here or people criticizing, maybe it's not being framed the right way. There is something to be said for how the counterculture, the the resistance to a kind of conservative or Christian or or uncomfortable with offensiveness, that the people who are pushing back against that, the counterculture, were were liberal, progressive, they were not conservatives. They were not religious. They were people like Howard Stern. And how over time, uh, there's been a greater um, elite uh, association with liberalism and some, some of and the values those people would have had on gay marriage, abortion, race, et cetera. And now the, like, the, offend, the people who offend and push back against that hegemony are conservatives. So there's been a switch there I mean, that is not captured by the whole, oh, you've gone woke, but that is nevertheless kind of interesting. I mean, I think that's kind of funny because it presumes that, like, being trans is mainstream or being comfortable with trans issues is mainstream in a way that I think we discuss it like it is, and it really isn't. I mean, there is a small niche part of the country that is welcoming and and, and even, in fact, laudatory of people who are not gender nonconforming. But, like, I think a lot of that is overstated. So there are p- plenty of people who are pushing against the system from the left. That's very true, but it, it would be it's very celebrated in elite culture. Yeah, because in there's been this co optation yeah. of identity politics that I, I would agree with you. It's hurting the communities that are actually involved because they're getting pegged with all of these ridiculous excesses that I think are not really organic to the community. But, but the Howard Stern instance, Howard Stern is. What did we say in the read? The king of media, king of radio, something like that. He is the most successful, probably, radio personality of all time, maybe now rivaling Joe Rogan in a slightly different medium. He, I'm sure, has millions, if not billions of dollars. He's untouchable. He makes so much money. No one, no one is firing Howard Stern. There was a time in his career when he was legitimately vulnerable to all of those things. He that was vulnerable time, to the government. Yeah, right. That time is long behind him. So the yeah. idea that now he's making choices that are somehow the product of woke coercion, when he lasted through the decades of being oppressed by the FCC and everybody other other kind of government organization, Republican Party having these morality campaigns against him and all of that, like it, it just doesn't it just doesn't seem accurate to me. You either die an anti woke crusader or you live long enough to see yourself become the villain. <laughs> you live long enough to see yourself say. Hey, maybe I don't like doing blackface 20 years ago. And I don't know that I'm, I think that's a bad thing. You brought up a point before we started recording that I need to reiterate because it's so true. People in radio, now that you and I now find ourselves in a role where we talk a lot. I worked for a magazine previously. You did writing previously. I mean, you did a lot of podcasting as well. Anyway, I'm now, I'm I'm new, not new anymore. It's been going on for a year. But understanding the experience of, of when you do a show like this or radio or podcast or YouTube, you end up talking for a long period of time. Sometimes you end up saying something, you didn't quite nail it in your execution the way you said it, or sometimes your co-host will bring up a point, you don't really 
know what they're talking about. Just you respond to it. You just The more opportunities you have to say anything, the more likely you are yeah. to eventually say something that's wrong yeah. or that's bad or that gets you in trouble. Yeah. So we're all, yeah. you know, you and I just living out here in danger of... It's, look, we, we could be canceled at any moment, Robbie, but my, my issue with the cancellation has always been not that it's unfair to critique things, to criticize things, whatever. People err. Um, but if you don't have a society in which redemption and rehabilitation are possible, then people are never going to admit that they're wrong or grow no, or anything like that. So the issue with cancellation isn't the critique itself, as far as I'm concerned. You know, if you, you know, what Louis C.K. did, not great. <laughs> you know, a lot of these Me Too scandals, not but great. But it's funny regardless. But the, the question is, is there an actual, what does it look like for someone like Louis C.K. to be genuinely repentant, genuinely make, am- genuinely make amends, and have a path back to the public eye in a way that feels satisfactory to all, to, to at least most of the people involved? And if you are foreclosing, if you want to banish people and excommunicate people, I think that is that is the core problem. Also, letting people back in without Absolutely. any kind of reckoning is a problem. But that that's, I think, where we need to be focused on today. Not not necessarily on whether or not Howard Stern has sold out because he is in the firmly anti-blackface. I don't yeah. care very much about that, but I, Louis C.K. is one of the, in my view, funniest people who has ever lived. So I would Howard love Stern's pretty to funny too. Comedy. I'm sure Woke, Wokeness aside. Wokeness aside. <laughs> All right, uh, we got through that. <laughs> Tomorrow on Rising, we will have a very reasonable show <laughs> planned. Uh, I think that's a reference to a big. Uh, magazine cover story that uh, I wrote for Reason that I'm going to be discussing in a bonus radar tomorrow. You won't want to miss it. Got some important special news not elsewhere reported in there. And then my colleague at Reason, Elizabeth Nolan Brown, uh, will also be helping us tackle and understand the sex trafficking allegations against Andrew Tate. A lot of important and interesting conversations you won't want to miss. I'm looking forward to that. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any of this content. And for those of you who prefer to listen while on the go, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. We're also available on Roku and other streaming services. So hope to see you over there. Don't cancel us. (laughs) Don't cancel us yet. See you tomorrow. See ya.